We're here to do the reading rant. That's what we're here to do. We're here to spend time in the reading of the word. Every weekday morning, we engage in the reading of the word of God. We have journeyed now through uh, a large portion of the Old Testament. We've journeyed through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. And now we are in the book of Ezra. Guys, you have, can you believe this? We've done it. Look at how far we've gotten, fam. We've gotten this far in the word. And you guys have journeyed with us. And that gets me excited because I truly believe this. I truly believe this, that when you spend time in the word for yourself and you engage in it for yourself, when every believer does that, it empowers the church to move in a profoundly supernatural and powerful way. Um, it is one of the most, most important, most critical endeavors of any Christian believer. I believe that the survival of the believer is in the discipline, in the time that they spend in prayer and in the reading of the word. And so that's what we do. We, we we spend some time in the reading of the word. This is my daily rhythm that I've allowed you an opportunity to eavesdrop in. I've got nothing prepared. Uh, we'll spend a few minutes today. Usually we spend 20 or 30 minutes reading. I'll spend another 20 or 30 minutes reflecting on the word. But today we're simply going to spend... Um, a few minutes reading, and then we're going to reflect. But I have nothing prepared, nothing planned. This is not a Bible study. We'll leave that for Patreon. Thank you for all the patrons who support us. If you're interested in becoming a patron, just go on the link in the bio or just go to patreon.com slash opusfrere, patreon.com slash opusfrere. But that's not what we're here to do. We're not here to do a Bible study. We're just here to engage with God in the meditation of the Scripture. And so let us dig in. We're going to ask three questions. God, what are you revealing concerning yourself? One, two, God, what are you revealing concerning people? Three, God, what are you revealing concerning me? What are you revealing concerning me? We want a posture of meditation as we read the word. And so, Father, we ask, as we engage today in your word, Father, bless us. Lord, grace us with your presence, Father. We pray for your wisdom. We pray for your infinite wisdom, just a remnant of your wisdom today as we read your word. Father, I pray that you would guide us, that you would lead us, that you would speak to us today. Father, we need you. Lord, how weak are we? <laughs> how limited are we, each and every one of us? How, <laughs> how profoundly dependent we are on you. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to us today. Lord, engage with us as we engage with you in your word. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Ezra, we're kicking it off today. Ezra chapter 1, and we're going to read verse 1, and I'll spend a few moments reading. And I would encourage you all to read with me. Verse 1, it says this. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, 
all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with precious things. Besides all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Jerusalem, sorry, from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, these are the people of the province who came from captivity, of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Relah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvai, Rahim, and Banah. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the people of Parash, 2,172. The people of Sephatiah, 372. The people of Ara, 775. The people of Pahath Moab, of the people of Jeshua and Joab. 2,812, the people of Elam, 1,254, the people of Zatu, 945, the people of Zakai, 760, the people of Bani, 642, the people of Babai, 623, the people of Azgad, 1,222, the people of Adonikim, 666, the people of Bagvai, 2056, the people of Adin, 454, the people of Atter, of Hezekiah, 98, the people of Bazai, 323, the people of Jorah, 112, the people of Hashum, 223, the people of Gebar, 95, the people of Bethlehem, 123, the men of Natofa, 56, the men of Anathoth, 128, the people of Asmaveth, 42, the people of Kerjath, Arim, Shephira, and Biroth, 
743. The people of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The people of Nebo, 52. The people of Magbish, 156. The people of the other Elam, 100. Sorry, 1,254. The people of Harim, 320. The people of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. The people of Jericho, 345. The people of Sana'a, 300. Sorry, 3,630. The priests, the sons of Jedediah, the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Immer, 1,052, the sons of Pashur, 1,247, the sons of Harim, 1,017, the Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kadmeyal, the sons of Hadovia, 74, the singers, the sons of Asaph, 128, the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hetita, and the sons of Shobai, 139 in all. Nethanim, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hesufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sahaya, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebana, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Reia, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uza, the sons of Pasea, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Meunam, the sons of Nefushim, the sons of Bekbuk, sorry, Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harar, the sons of Basluth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tama, the sons of Nezia, the sons of Hatifa, the, son, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sephoreth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jaala, the sons of Dakon, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth, the sons of Zebaim, the sons of Ami, all the Nethanim, the children of Solomon's servants, were 392. And these were the ones who came up to Tel Melah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adan, Immer. But they could not identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were of Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nekoda, 652, the sons of the priests, the sons of Habat, Habiah, the sons of Kaz, the sons of Barzilia, the son who took a wife of the daughter of Barzilia, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. The governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things, so the priests could consult with Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together were 42,360. 
besides their male and female servants, of whom were 7,337. And they had 200 men and women singers. Their horses were 736. Their mules, 245. Their camels, 435. Their donkeys, 6,720. Some of the heads of the father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place, according to their ability. They gave to the treasury for the work of 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. So the priests and the Levites and some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethanim, dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. And, the seventh, and when the seventh month had come, the children of Israel were in the cities. They were gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Joshua, the son of Zedekah, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the Lord God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number acquired by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for the new moons and for the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. For from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, Joshua, the son of Zedekiah, and the rest of the priests, uh, of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, all those who had come out of captivity to, to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the house, the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua with his sons and brothers, Kadmiel with his sons, and the sons of Judah arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God. And the sons of Hanadad with their sons and the brethren of the Levites. When the brothers laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, and the symbols to the praise of the Lord, according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and the head of the fathers, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. 
for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. Hmm. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. Ah. This is, uh, first of all, before I even share my thought on this, I just want to say this, that um, we are kind of doing a, in the whole narrative story, we're doing a, a, a rewind. We've seen through the narrative of the children of Israel as they've left the wilderness, as they've entered into Canaan, as they've become the nation of Israel, as the kings who ruled over those nations persistently and consistently uh, failed, and yet there was still this promise that was given specifically to David of this messianic king that would bring restoration and renewal to the children of Israel who would then bring restoration and renewal to all of humanity. This is what we call the kingdom of God, the establishing of the kingdom of God. And so we see this uh, narrative and we see the story as it progresses moving forward. But then we get to Kings and we see, yes, these aren't the Kings. And then we get to Chronicles and we get more specificity to what has transpired. But the thing that's interesting about it is that while we've read Kings and Kings Ends, Chronicles is a fast forward. Right. Chronicles is written century, over a century later. Um, after we see at the end of the book of Kings, the children falling into captivity in Babylon. They fall into Babylonian captivity due again to the disobedience of the kings to adhere to the law of God. Because again, this is a peculiar people, a peculiar nation. And because a peculiar people and a peculiar nation, there's a means by which God is bringing restoration to all of humanity and all of mankind through them. And yet the kings remain disobedient and in, being, in being disobedient persisted to live as the as those the neighboring countries had lived. And in essence, what happens is, is through compromise, which is really the form of evil of these men. This is the least common denominator of these men that, that they compromised the law of God. They compromised the command of the Lord that in compromising it, they now have assimilated right to the, the, the Canaanites, those who've been around them, the nations that surround them. And in assimilating now, we find that, they've been infiltrated. As a quick little side note, that when your motive is not to be distinct, but when your motive is to assimilate, it opens the door for the enemy to infiltrate. Let me say that one more time, is that when you have, when at the heart, what motivates your behavior, your action and your uh, desire, your motives, when all those things are driven to find cultural congruency, to find or to assimilate yourself to those who are around you, you've given opportunity now for the enemy to infiltrate. We see this in the example of the children of Israel, and we see it also in the example of our lives that often the reason why the enemy finds a place in our lives is because 
We didn't seek to find distinctness between us and the rest of the world or between you and the rest of the world, but rather you sought to make compromises to assimilate. And so those compromises that you're making to assimilate, the consequence of that is that the, the, the same lies of the enemy, the attacks of the enemy come from within. And because it comes from within now, you find that your means of looking to assimilate or seeking to assimilate now causes not only the sins of the world to become the sins of your home and of your nation, but also causes the, the difficulties, the challenges, and the failures of the world to become the failures of your home as well. Right, It's the means of seeking to assimilate that has caused us to have the same struggles as the rest of the world. I find that very peculiar, family, very, very peculiar, that it seems that the church has assimilated so much, right? The people of God have assimilated so much into culture that now the church's problems are the nation's problems. The nation's problems are the church's problems. The world's problems have become the church's problems. And yet, when you are a distinct nation and a distinct people, by being a distinct nation, a distinct people, your issues aren't the world's issues. Your problems aren't the world's problems. We, we are a peculiar people with peculiar challenges. I think one way to assess how much you've assimilated to culture and to the moment in the culture, is to ask yourself, is your pain the rest of the world's pain? Is your struggle the world's struggle? Because if your pain is the world's pain and your struggle is the world's struggle and your challenges are the world's challenges, and yet there's no distinction even in the struggle and the pain, you have to ask yourself, have you become the world? I think it's one means of assessment, one, one, one way to assess where you really are is, is your pain the same pain? And when I, when I talk about the same pain, I'm talking about when, you, when we look at the, the pain points of culture and society, it's not taking it on in the sense of we want to be ministers of grace and mercy to, to, to incarnate and to, 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 to enter and to make the world's pain our pain. No, it's that we have, we have the same pain and the same struggles as the rest of the world. But when we look at the text, when we look at the Bible, we're beginning to see that a peculiar people always have a peculiar pain. Pain is, is everywhere. But the pain of the children of God must be distinct from the pain of the rest of the world. We'd like to believe that as, at least. Right? We'd like to believe that. But unfortunately, that isn't always the reality. However, we see this, right? We see this in the story. That the children of Israel have taken on and have allowed the culture that surrounds them, the culture in the periphery, to now influence them. And so they've become like the rest of the world. And because they become like the rest of the world, they've given room and a door for the world to infiltrate. Are y'all catching me? And we see that when Babylon came in, they assessed all the jewels and, and the gold and the treasury of Israel. They began to look and to see everything because, again, we allowed them in. We allowed the enemy in. And by allowing the enemy in, we allowed the enemy to do an 
audit of us, to assess us, to assess every part of us. The greatest attacks happen from within. And now that they've allowed the enemy in, they're now suffering from the same pain that the other neighboring nations have suffered. They have been overtaken by Babylon. Overtaken by Babylon. And so the book ends with northern Israel being mostly now populated by the neighboring countries. And the southern nation of Judah, right, being drawn out into captivity, brought into Babylon. So now Israel has been pulled out of its land again. And now they're under the captivity of Babylon. Of course, we're going to read later on. Notice now, this is where we're trying to get to the chronology of this all. But we're going to read later on what has transpired in Babylon, right? You can just read the book of Daniel, right? And you'll see what transpires in Babylon. But we don't get to do that here. But what we see happens is that Persia then takes over Babylon. And and Persia now becomes the new uh, power, the world power. And so now Persia takes Babylon into captivity, and by consequence, because Babylon is taken into captivity, Israel is taken into captivity as well. It's just that the captive has changed. Man, there's so many stories in that. That if what holds you captive, whatever holds you captive, I'll, I'll back that up for a second. Whatever holds you captive, what holds that thing captive, by consequence, also holds you captive. Listen to me very carefully here. If you're being held captive by a person or by a power, by an institution, if you're being held captive by a cultural stream of thought, whatever holds that captive holds you captive as well. Babylon holds the children of Israel captive. And now because Persia now has taken over Babylon, Persia now holds Israel captive. So if your if your spouse's ideology or spouse holds you captive, what holds them captive holds you captive as well, right? Um, if it's the institution that holds you captive in your thought, what holds them captive holds you captive as well. That's just a side note, and that's I'm getting to my point. I'm getting to my point here. But of course, what happens is is that the Lord speaks to Persia. And so we see all this time transpire. And then about 50 years later, about half a century later, Persia was taken over. Cyrus, who's the king of Persia, receives a word from the Lord. And it opens the text here where in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. You see how all the prophets are coming? They all happen within this period, okay? So you guys can start seeing how all this fits in the chronology of the story. But now Jeremiah makes this prophecy of the hope of a new nation, the hope of Israel to leave captivity and to go back to the nation, to go back to Jerusalem, the hope of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the hope of the rebuilding of the temple, There's this hope of the rebuilding of the temple and the hope of this king 
this king that would bring all things new, that would make all things right, that would establish justice, that would establish the kingdom of God on earth. This is what the children of God are anticipating because this is what has been promised to them by God, by the words that have come from Jeremiah. And so now we see that what the author of Ezra is doing is the author of Ezra is pointing to this fulfillment that it's coming into fruition. It's pointing to the hope that we have. And he says that the Lord has stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And, and, and Cyrus now makes this proclamation to return the children of Israel, a decree to allow the children of Israel to return back to Israel, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, and to uh, rebuild the walls. We're going to see this transpire over the next um, um, chapters in the two books that we're reading in Ezra and Nehemiah moving forward. We see this, and now we're seeing this thing coming into fruition. We see the hope of, uh, of, of the children of Israel. Um, we, we see hope coming alive again. Like, wait, this isn't going to end like this. This isn't, there's more here. God's got more in store. That, did, that this isn't the end. Captivity is not the end for us. Uh, uh, there's more. God has purpose for us. His promises to us have not been made void, that, that his promises to us will not return to him void, that, that God is establishing his righteousness, he's establishing his justice, and we see remnants of that, that simply by the grace of God, that a pagan king submits to a divine revelation to allow the children of Israel to return to Jerusalem. I want you to catch this, family. I want you to catch this. Isn't it funny how the kings who were chosen by God of the lineage of God, isn't it funny how oftentimes they needed to hear from a prophet to hear from God? But Cyrus, who is a pagan king, not chosen by God, didn't hear from a prophet. Cyrus, a pagan king, heard from God himself. The chosen people of God needed a prophet, but this pagan king heard from God? How, Sway? How does that happen? How does a, how, how does a pagan king hear directly from God, but the children of God needed a prophet? So here's the thing. We often don't understand that God is a pragmatic God. And when I say that God is a pragmatic God, there is a purpose behind everything God does. God's got something he's instituting. He has something he's doing, and he's going to use whatever he needs to use to get what he needs to get done. This was never about an ordinance or a system, but rather about what needed to be done and what needed to be accomplished. God didn't call a prophet to come to Cyrus, but rather 
God spoke to Cyrus. And upon revelation, God tells Cyrus, it's time for my people to return back to my nation. It is the obedience of the king that God presupposes that allows him to receive the word from God. That is to say, there's a promise here that it isn't the prophet that needs to give us the word, but rather it is the posture of our hearts that allow us to hear from God. Funny how it is that many of us feel like we need to hear from a prophet, but remember that the only reason why the children of God couldn't hear from God and that prophets had to speak in order for them to hear from God is simply because the children of Israel themselves had asked not to hear from God and asked instead for Moses to speak on their behalf. That is to say this family, that the only reason why many of us don't hear from God is because many of us have consciously chosen to distance ourselves. We've made ourselves dependent on a man of God, on a person to do or to speak on our behalf. And yet God had always had the attention to speak directly to his children. Obedience is greater than sacrifice, family. Here's Cyrus, here's a word from God. And upon hearing the word from God, Cyrus responds by obedience. He obeys and he allows captives to return to Jerusalem. So this large group of captives return to Jerusalem. That's not even my point today. I'm getting to my point. This is, this is a rant, y'all. I know you guys know how this stuff works. This is a rant. I'm just ranting. I'm just talking through my thoughts. I'm just thinking out loud to really get to where I believe the Lord is leading us today as we spend time in engaging in his word. Okay, so I'm all over the place. Same for you to take notes, it's for you just to soak in for a moment. We read in chapter two this manifest, right? This list of people who now are returning back to Jerusalem. And after they've returned back to Jerusalem, they begin to establish and to institute the rebuilding of the temple. Jerubabel was the man who was positioned for the rebuilding of the temple, Jerubel. Jerubel, who was born in Babylon, raised in Babylon, is now returning to Jerusalem. Jerubabel, who has, who was born in captivity, is now being moved and and called to lead a people into freedom. And now he begins to establish the institution of the rebuilding of the temple. Of course, we want to rebuild the temple because the temple for the children of Israel represented the corporeal presence of God. So we're going to build the temple because we know how this thing went. We know what happened when we read through the book of Leviticus. We know what happened when the temple and the tabernacle was built. We know that when the tabernacle was built, the glory of the Lord fell down. There was a cloud that came down. We know exactly what happens when the tabernacle is built. We know that's exactly what happens when you build the structure and then we see the cloud descend. We've seen what happens when we build the building we see what happens. We know that if we build it, he will come. Or will he? 
Isn't it funny how we always look back at what worked and assume what worked before is going to work again? And it's funny how sometimes we think that the method back then will be the method today. Isn't it funny how we have a way of thinking that the result comes from the method, not realizing when the environment changes, the conditions change, and the heart changes, that the method changes as well. And it's funny how there are many of us who grew up doing church a certain way or walking a certain way and living a certain way, not realizing that the new constructs and the new challenges that, that are being faced require us to take new methodologies and new systems. God does not exist in your system. He does not exist in your laws. He does not exist in your ordinances. He does not exist in your, in your, in your strategic frameworks. He does not exist in how you used to do things. And yet, Many of us operate this way. The children of Israel operated this way. They operated this way with the presumption that we want to see the presence and the glory of God again. So if we want to see the presence and the glory of God, then we need to build the temple. That's the first thing we do. So let's build the temple first. And it's funny how for many of us, we don't feel like we got it unless the building's there, unless the structure is there, unless the temple is there, unless the symbol is there, unless we keep the ordinances. Look what it says in chapter four and in Ezra chapter three. It says in Ezra chapter three, verse four, it says they also kept the feast of the tabernacles. And then they offered daily burnt sacrifices in the number uh, required by ordinance for each day. Verse 5, afterward, they offered regular burnt offering and, and those for the new moon. So they celebrated all the calendars, the, the religious calendar they celebrated. For all the appointed feasts, they celebrated. Yes, they, 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 they celebrated the laws. They offered burnt offerings. They built up altars, the Feast of Tabernacles, all that. They did all of it. And then look what it says. Then they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, food, drink, and oil. People of Sidon and Tyre, they brought cedar logs because now they're about to build a temple. So now they're following the ordinances. They're following the, 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 the systems that they've seen in the law. They followed all the stuff that they see in the Torah. And by following the system, what should happen, the same thing that happened to them should happen to us. They have placed God in the box of their ordinances and their systems and their laws, tradition. We don't like to believe it and we don't like to admit it, but the reality is that for many of us, we live under the rule that God exists in our traditions. Because if you remove the traditions, then somehow God ain't in it no more. If you take away the pews in the church, God ain't in here no more. If you take away the steeple, God ain't in it anymore. If we don't practice communion on the first Sunday of every month, God ain't in this no more. If we don't, so we have this, this formulaic way of looking at God. We have this formulaic way of doing church. We have this formulaic way of walking in Christ. We have this formulaic way of living because we've turned our relationship with God into a formula. And they have a formula. Yes, they have a formula, y'all. And they, they, they're reading the formula and they're going, okay, do that and then do that 
and then do that. And then once we do that, then we do this. And then after we do this, okay, cool, got it. Okay, cool. Did, did y'all get it? Did y'all get it? Huh? Oh, y'all got it? Okay, so first we need to build an altar. So let's go ahead and do that. All right, guys, put an altar together. Great, done. Altar done. Perfect, good. This is Ezra chapter three, y'all. Then they say, okay, so what's next? Okay, let's look at the, okay, we've got Feast of Tabernacles. All right. Um, guys, how do we do the feast? Take a look at the book. How's it done? Got it. Okay, let's go ahead and do the feast. Got it. Okay. Um, new moons, new moons. Got it. Okay, let's go ahead and do that. Let's celebrate that. Good. Got it. Perfect. Good. We got it. What else is there? Sacrifices. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We got to do that, too. Um, how do they do that? Go back to Leviticus real quick. Read it. Read Leviticus. Is it in nine? Yeah. Read Leviticus nine. Got it. That's how you do it. Okay, cool. Yeah, let's do that, too. All right, cool. All right, great. What else we got? Um, and they just went through the list. And they went through the list. First day of the seventh month, offering burnt offerings to the Lord. Went through the list. Then they said, okay, guys, I think we got it. We got the altar. So now let's build the church. So then in Ezra chapter 3, verse 8, in the second month of the second year of their coming of the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, Jeshua, the son of um, um, Jezadak, and the rest of the brethren, the peace of the Levites, and all, all of them who were brought into captivity come together now to build the temple. And then look what it says in chapter, in verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David. And they sang, celebrated that we've done everything in the book. And we're also going to praise like David praised. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to put on the, the apparel like, like, like they did back in the day. Yes. Get the Levites out. Let's sing the songs like, like they did back in the day. We got this, and they sang, and they made a noise. <sighs> but then verse 12 says, But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father's house's old men who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the temple was laid before their eyes, yet many shouted aloud with joy. there were a few of them who had seen the first temple. And that few of them who saw the first temple, that, that prior generation who saw the first temple, they saw it. And they saw and experienced what the glory of God was like. They saw it and they saw and experienced but the outpouring of the Spirit of God, the cloud, they knew what that was like. They had seen what a move of God looked like. And now they see the foundation being built. And they see that they followed all these things to the book. But even though they followed all these things to the book, this doesn't look like it. I don't, I don't see the same demonstration that I saw before. These priests and these Levites and the heads of the father's houses, the old heads, they look and they go, they're doing everything we did. 
but there's no glory in it. Where's the glory? They mimicked everything to the book. I mean, they're doing what we did. But where's God? The scariest part about this, and I know we're leaving an attention today, but the scariest part about this is that because they were the minority, the weeping of the few were drowned out by the noise and the joyful shout of the ignorant majority. So when they heard the joyful shout, it says that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. We hear the noise, but is God in it? We hear the shout, but is God in it? This is an indictment on the prior generation and the indictment on this generation. And it's an indictment on the generation to come. It's an indictment on the prior generation who believes that God exists in the traditions. And then they get confused when the next generation applies the same methodologies as their tradition, apply the sorry, of their generation, applies the same practices and the same way of doing church as their generation. And then they wonder why is there no move of God? There's no move of God because God is not in your tradition. Are y'all hearing me? God is not in your tradition. This is also an indictment on this generation that simply looks to see what the prior generation did and believe that by doing the method of the prior generation that they can see the same movement. And yet the unfortunate reality is, is that whatever the prior generation did isn't going to work for this generation because God is doing a new thing in this generation. This is an indictment. I've gone to churches where I see 20-year-old preachers. I'm, I'm, I, I kid you not. And I'm not, I'm not like a super, like I, I don't go to church very often anymore. It's just I, I have so many other things going on, but I've, I, I've, you know, aside from my community. But when I, whenever I do go to church, I find it really, really weird. Why? A young 20-year-old preacher preaches like a preacher from 60 years ago in his diction, his language, his presentation. He preaches and speaks just like them. And I'm like, bro, that's not for your generation. The word is good, but the word delivery is stale. You need a fresh anointing. You need something new. Why do you sound like your dad? Why do you sound like your, your, you know, your uncle and the generations before you? What are you doing? We don't talk like that. 
We don't speak like that. We don't, we don't dictate that way. What, what are you doing? And then we wonder why the church is shrinking and declining and there are fewer people who are, because we are mimicking. We are mimicking the prior generation. Can I make an example? I don't want to make examples. I don't want to do that. Because then I'll start. I don't want to call one way out or another way out. But the reality is we all know it. We all know it. And it's and it's cultural. Okay? From the hooping of black culture to the way scripture is exposited in white culture to the way in in in, in, in Caribbean culture uh, preaching is, is is delivered to the way it's done in, in South American culture. I've seen young preachers preaching like the old heads, and I go, bro, you're I mean, you're young, you're gifted, you're anointed, you're, but you're 16. Why do you, why do you preach like you're 45? I know people are impressed that you sound like a 45-year-old, but the reality is you can have the wisdom of a 45-year-old, but the delivery for your generation, your generation is not listening to that. Your generation needs your voice, so find your voice. I don't know if my sons are going to preach. I don't know. Maybe they become preachers. Maybe they don't. I'm, there's no pressure, okay? Ellison, Izzy, there's no pressure. Okay, do what God is calling you to do. But if for any reason any of you become preachers, don't preach like your dad. <laughs> you can preach with the same gifting, intelligence, wisdom that maybe your father has. But God's giving you a different word. He's giving you a different voice. He's giving you a different delivery. God does not exist in my method. Find your voice. Oh, goodness gracious, goodness gracious, goodness gracious. We take the methods. So now we think that this isn't church because we're so used to going to church on Sunday because we believe God's in the Sunday service. Right? So now if I don't go to church on Sunday, methodology, we put God in the method. Did you hear me? That's right, Gary. Gary, Gary first of all, you have an incredible anointing. Okay, I remember the first time you came on here, I just felt the Spirit of God poking right through that screen. You have an incredible anointing. You do not need to mimic anyone. You're going to sound different. It's going to be weird to some, and it's going to connect to those that God is calling you to. Okay, don't, 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 don't look to to copy and to emulate anyone else. Do what you're called to do. So this is an indictment on this generation. Stop copying the methodology and calling that the movement. Last thing now is, this is also an indictment on this generation and the one to come. Don't presume that because there's joyful noise that God is in it. Do not assume that because we're shouting and we're praising that God is in it. Don't presume that because we're clapping and celebrating, even with Jesus' name, don't assume that God is in it. And this is where balance comes into play. I'm done, I'm ranting, y'all. I know I'm ranting, I'm, I'm ranting. But this is where balance comes into play, is that this generation has this aversion to the wisdom of the older generation. 
So we have this aversion to, hey, y'all were doing things your way, but they've got a wisdom because they've seen what a move of God looks like. And they're looking at what we're doing and they're going, it looks good, but is God really in it? The gift that you have is that you know it's not in the method. And yes, there needs to be an alteration to the method. But they have a discernment to know where God is and is not. It's different, but God's in it. And yet we lack that discernment, which is why we need the voices of those who are older than us. There's some young folk in here and there's some older folk in here. And let me tell you something right now. If there's anything the church needs today is the engagement in the wisdom of the older generation on the younger generation. That's the problem. The younger generation thinks they're so smart that they, they, got, they got the new way of doing it. And it's a response. That's what it is. It's actually a reaction to the intransigence of the older generation that says, you have to do church like this. So this is where the older generation has to repent and say, this is, it's not in the method. This method was good in this season. There's a new way. But the older generation has the discernment to know what God is in. So the younger generation now, they have an understanding of the method, but there's something more to it than just doing something different. And this is the problem now that we have. Is we do have a young generation that's moving away from older church models, but they're running to things that look like a move of God, but are not a move of God. And this is why it's critical that both generations come together. Are y'all hearing me? I know I'm, I'm speaking for myself as well. The biggest pain point right now that I see in the church is the division of generations. I appreciate so much. I've got folks in here who you, you're 20 years my senior and you have no idea how much I appreciate you. I've got those of you who are in your 60s. Um, I've got people now in their 70s who come and they pray for me and they impart and they encourage me. I love you. As a matter of fact, one of the things I've been praying about is to see more of those people in my church. My church is young. And yeah, maybe the methodology is different. So, you know, they, they see, you know, our church, our community, we've got average age is uh, 27. It's, going, it's creeping up now, praise God. But if our average age right now is somewhere in the late 20s, early 30s, really young. And yeah, it's great. There's vibrance and all of that. But we need the maturity of the older generation. Man, I'm telling you, I'm praying for some older folk because there's no greater value than someone who's seen it, who knows what it looks like, who says, hey, Pastor Isaac, I love your word. I love your message. Your delivery is different than what I grew up with, but I see God in it. And I want to be a part of that to see another generation come to Christ. God wants to bridge the generations together. And what I see in this text is an older generation who's being drowned out by a younger generation. I see the old men who are weeping because they don't see a move of God. 
and I see the young men who are screaming above them, who say, well, we like the noise. So let's cut through the noise. That's what I'm going to name this episode. I'm going to post this on Patreon, but it's going to be cut through the noise. We need a move of God. Father, I ask right now, Lord, that you would teach us to discern, Lord, when a joyful noise has your presence in it and when it doesn't. Father, teach us to Lord, look beyond simply the methods and the systems and the traditions and the methodologies. But Lord, to seek the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Father, I ask right now, Lord, that you would teach us who are of uh, the younger generation, Lord, to seek the wisdom of the older generation. Lord, give grace upon the prior generation, Lord, that would allow them, Lord, the patience to be able to lead us and to minister to us and to give us the wisdom. Father, we need the wisdom of those who are older than us, and they need the energy and the vibrancy that we bring. And yet together, Lord, we believe there can be a move. So, Father, I pray like right now for conviction, Lord, for those who are older, who have been forcing a way of doing things, Lord, that they would see a new way in a new thing, for you are doing a new thing. And for those of us who are in the new thing, Lord, to seek after those who have already seen you move, Lord, to seek their guidance and their wisdom, Father, Lord, humble us all, Lord, humble each and every one of us, Lord, as we engage with you, and that we would see your glory come down, that we would see a generation come to Christ, that we would see a movement, a move of God, that we would see a revival in your people. And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen and amen.